Okay, so without further ado, we'll, we'll begin. So we ended Sefer Shoftim, one second. Um, okay. We ended Sefer Shoftim, and as I, as I spoke to you about, if you were with us in the Sefer Shoftim, there was a, um, a third section. The first section was introduction. The second section were the stories of the Shoftim. And the third section were the two stories that we ended with. Number one being the story of Pesel Micha, the idol of Micha. And the second one being the Pilegish Begiva. The two last stories, which comprise five chapters, left us with a very um, uh, a very low point in Sefer Shoftim. And we're not really sure, because I'm not really sure when these two stories happened. And it could have been earlier in the period of Shoftim. There were a number of signs that point that way. So the question is, why are these stories at the end of Sefer Shoftim? And we're moving on to uh, Sefer Shmuel. And we know the Gemara says in Baba Basra, um, pages 14 and 15 in Baba Basra talk about which Nabi wrote which book. Generally speaking, each Nabi wrote their own book. And Shmuel, we're told, Shmuel wrote Sefer Shoftim, and he wrote Sefer Shmuel, and he wrote Gilat Rut, which is a Shoftim story as well. And <clears throat> of course, Shmuel dies, uh, you know, uh, a good way through the story of Sefer Shmuel, and it's finished off by Natan and God, just for your information. But it's important to understand that although everything is divinely inspired in the Sifre Nebua, there's still, there is a purpose to what's happening. And if you look at the end of Shoftim, it gives you a hint to what we're going to see in Sefer Shmuel. So first of all, the last line of Sefer Shoftim is, Bayamim ha'hein ein melech Yisrael. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Ish ha'yashar Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And this particular pasuk is repeated, if I'm not mistaken, four times, at the very least four times. And we get a sense of the anarchy, the lawlessness, the breakdown of the system. So for, while we had a Moshe Rabbeinu, while we had a Yeshua, while we had a Deborah, these were the great, great leaders who were part of the system of the Shoftim. But this system is unstable. It's problematic. And the spiritual level of Jewish people is going down, 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 down. Possibly Pilegish Begiva, the story of the concubine Geva in chapter 19, and the civil war of 20 and 21, probably among the lowest points in Jewish history, speaking about the, the, the relationship of the Jews to each other. There's nothing worse than a civil war, and they almost wiped out all Shevet. So we're seeing that Sefer Shoftim, for all its drama and its interest, is going in a, in a difficult direction. So then along comes Sefer Shmuel. And Sefer Shmuel is out of line. Now Rashi, the first Rashi, so I'm going to screen share now. So hide everybody first. Okay, the screen share, then I don't see you so much. Okay. Okay. 
So first of all, you see here that the first parak is one long narrative. There's no break. It's, it's just one long story, which we'll get to in a minute. And here, okay, this is the beginning of Shmuel Aleph. And we have the Rashi here. So let's take a look at the first Rashi. Rashi is making a very important point. Rashi is saying, in the Mishnah in Pirkei Avot, the first Mishnah is, Moshe Kibi Atari Sinai. That's the Chumash. Umisarli Yeshua. That's say for Yeshua. Yeshua is Canaan. Yeshua passed it along to the Zikanim. In our understanding, the Zikanim is probably parallel to the Shoftim. Perhaps if one was political and one was religious, but that's the, the, the era. And then it was Canaan and Vim. So what actually happens here, I wanted to give you a diagram, I didn't get to it. What actually happens is that the Shofate, who is the leader in, Sefer Shoftim, and up until the kings come along, the Shofate's position is religious leader, military leader, political leader, he's everything. When the time of the kings come, the kings work together with a Navi. So when it says, Yoshua is Canaan, is Canaan Nevi'im, and we're going to the Nevi'im, that means the time of the, of the kings. So really, if you look at Pirkei Avos, we are missing the book. We've got Moshe, that's Chumash, Yoshua, okay, Sefer Yoshua, Zakadim, that's Sefer Shoftim, right? And then we go right to Nevi'im, which is really Sefer Malachim. So what are we doing with Sefer Shmuel? What is it doing there? And what Rashi is, is raising this issue, it's all according to the order. This is the order of Pirkei Avos. And then we have to ask ourselves, why does Shmuel get a whole book by himself? And by the way, it, we, we, do, okay, we talk about Shmuel Aleph and Shmuel Bet, but these are not really, they're not really any kind of a Jewish story. They're just a, an arbitrary division. It started with the Greeks and the Christians, and we just adopt, adopted it because it was easier, and um, it really has no religious significance. But let's, because we use it, so we use it. So, but really Shmuel is the story of the transition, and Shmuel is this tremendous transitional figure and that's the story that connects um, Sefer, uh, connects the, the era of the judges and the era of the kings. And Shmuel is the last judge, and he's going to anoint the first king and then later the second king. So Shmuel is a very, very pivotal figure. And it says in, in uh, you know, in uh, Tehillim 99, and we say this in Kabbalah Shabbat, Moshe and Aaron bekoanav Shmuel bekorei Shmo. Moshe and Aaron among his koanim, God's koanim, and Shmuel, those who call his name, which puts Shmuel right up there in the big leagues with Moshe and Aaron. So, because of the transitional nature of Shmuel's life, and because of the tremendous revolution that he caused, spiritual revolution, he brought the people up from the very, very very, very um, depths 
of the story of Pelagish Begeva. He brings them back up spiritually. He gets rid of the idol worship. He unites them behind him. He does Kiru. He's like our first Chabad rabbi. He does out there outreach. He brings the people together and he brings them closer to God. And his role is so pivotal and so important that he gets his own safer. So that is by way of introduction. And now let's go into the text. Um, okay, so our first lesson is there. It's like, what a great uh, mahapach, what a great revolution one tremendous individual could make. The power of one, we, we talked about this at different places, like one person, you know, never underestimate the, the great things that one person can do. And um, let's go forward. Okay, so now we're going to meet Shmuel's family. Now, in Divrei Yomim, in Chronicles, you get the whole chronology, uh, the whole, uh, I'm sorry, genealogy, going back to Levi, Kahat, Yitzhar, Korach. Uh, it goes to like, you know, 16 generations, and you find out that Elkanah is a descendant of Korach. And um, it says clearly in the Chumash, B'nai Korach Lometu, the sons of Korach didn't die with Korach. And the Medrash talks about how Korach knew that he was going to have great descendants and sort of went off on that. And one of his great descendants is going to be Elkanah, and another one is going to be Shmuel. And he has, you know, uh, descendants who sang uh, Zmiros in the, in the Tehillim, you know, Shem is Moab Korach. So he does have great descendants. We have this very, very long, um, Introduction to Elkanah. Let's talk for a second about Ramatayim Sofim. This is Harafrayim. So the first thing we have to pay attention to is that Harafrayim and the Levi, he's a Levi, right? This is very reminiscent of the last two stories because both Pesamicha and Pelegish Begiva have a Levi and there's like Harafrayim in there and there's Ephrat in there in both these stories. So we What's Ephrat meaning Beit Lechem? We'll talk about Ephrat in a minute. But you see that those, the, the Levi in, um, that we meet in chapter 19 of Shoftim brings disaster on the Jewish people. This Levi is going to bring greatness and redemption. So Ramatayim Sofim must be someplace up in Harifrayim. Let me give you a map. This map, okay. Oh dear. Okay. So here we are. This is Yushalayim, and this is the path that goes north. the 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 um the italics are are local places like uh, of today, like Nevayakov's in there, and the airport Atarot that didn't have that then. <laughs> okay. So we're going up from Yushalayim all the way to Shiloh, right? And the Pesel Micha is very close to Shiloh. We don't know exactly where, but somewhere, Harifrayim. And this is their, the Dat Mikra, it's a Dat Mikra map, the Moser um, of Cook map. That's where they assume Ramatayim Sofim is. And he's going to Shiloh. So let's go back. Uh, 
and he's called an Ephratee. So now we have a problem with Ephratee. So I'll just raise the issue because we don't have a lot of time in there. By the way, if anyone was watching the, the Bible contest, they had a question where they gave you one word and you had to identify the Sefer. They gave the word Tohu. One of the ancestors of Elkanah, I noticed it. I'm like, Tohu. Right? <laughs> In any event, Ephrati can either mean from Ephra, which is Beit Lechem, which is down south of Yehuda, or it could be from Ephraim. And we've seen Ephrati as Ephraim in the civil war between Menashe and Ephraim at the time of Yiftach. Uh, if you're an Ephrati, can you say Shibolet? Right? So that's the Ephraim. But this can't be Ephraim because he's a lady. So what do we do with that? He's not from Ephraim, because from Harephraim. So he's from Harephraim. So Rashi avoids this whole issue and also have Boaz, who is from Bethlehem, Ephrat. He's called also Ephrati. So Rashi says, Ben Paltin Abginos, Adam Chashuv. Ephrati and the nobleman. Basic Ben. Now we're going to th get thrown into the story itself. The Loshte Nashim, Shemachat Penina. Okay. And he has two wives. And this is our signal that we have a problem because this, this is not a good scenario. It's always a different, let's say not always. It rarely ends well, right? And in this case, Panina has children and Hannah has no children. Then the Malbim makes an interesting statement here. The Malbim says, The Malbim makes a point here because it says, The name of one was Hannah. She was the wife. It was only after Hannah did not have children that he married Penina. And we see this, it's Sarah's idea that Abraham should marry Hagar, right? It's, you know, the, the Shvachot, um, Bilha and Zilpah, it's, it's their mistresses who say, you know, take them. So it seems that 10 years is the, is the general understanding of a person who is childless, 10 years. After 10 years, he marries Penina, and Penina begins having children. And she has, according to the measures, 10 children. So now we're, we're, we're talking about something like 20 years of childlessness, which we can only um, imagine that kind of pain. Um, uh, it, it's, it's, it's very heart-wrenching. I, Baruch Hashem, did not suffer this myself, but I know many, many people who did suffer with childlessness and who continue to suffer with it. And it's, it's a very, very hard parsha, as I think you're all aware. It's a very, very hard parsha. Now what happens here, Pasuk Gimel, Allah ha'ishahu me'iro mi'amim yamima, v'shtachavot l'zboach, v'ashem tzvakot v'shilau, v'sham shnei v'nei eili, chafim y'pinchas k'onim ha'shem. So here we had this, we're just given the story, he has these two wives, one is told and one doesn't. And this man, Allah ha'ishahu, from his town, mi'amim yamima, which is variously understood as from time to time or from year to year, to bow down and to sacrifice to Hashem, the Lord of hosts, at Shiloh. And there were the two sons of Eli, Hafni and Pinchas, who were Kohanim to, to Hashem. 
So when we meet up with this Pasuk, the first thing we have to ask ourselves is, what's the connection between the first part of the Pasuk and the second part of the Pasuk? The man went up, he would go up to Shiloh, right? And there in Shiloh, the two sons of Ailey were Kohanim. What's the connection? Now, the Medvish points to the wording here, and says, this man went up. Elkanah went up to Shiloh. But the Medrash says he was the only one. Now, if you look again at that map, right? Second. And you know that, that Pesel Micha is there. People were going to Pesel Micha until Shiloh was destroyed, right? This is a long time. Uh, Shiloh is not destroyed yet. It happens later in, in Sefer Shmuel. But the Pesamicha was an attraction, that area, and then it was taken up north, obviously later. But we have a very big issue here. Why isn't anyone going to Shiloh? And the Pasuk says, they were the two sons of Eli, Hafni, and Pinchas. They were the Kohanim. Now, we find out much more about Hafni and Pinchas in chapter two, which we're not going to talk about tonight. But... It seems from what we learn in chapter two that the reason people didn't go up to Shiloh was because Chafni and Pinchas were Kohanim Hashem. Now, I think probably everyone can remind themselves of an experience they had in a holy place that was like not a pleasant experience. So you went to the hotel and someone yelled at you because you crossed your legs on the chair. Don't laugh. If it hasn't happened to you, just try it. Sit on a chair at the hotel and cross your legs. And somebody's gonna run over and tell you that you're not allowed to cross your legs. Okay. Generally speaking, th there's many, many things that people will say to you at these holy places. We had, uh, my sister will remember, we had a, a woman, a particular woman in a particular shul of Rockway, which I won't mention. We never liked going to that shul because of what we call the lady with the hat. who's always yelling at the children. There are situations where a holy place in particular is a turnoff. You don't want to go there. And it seems that Hafni and Pinchas were uh, responsible for this kind of turnoff. And now we see that Elkanah is not made of the same stuff. So let's go, go on. I want you to see this medrash. Okay. Elkan used to make a pilgrimage to Shiloh for Sorry, did I ask you a question? Yes. Where was Pesel Micha? I didn't understand that. Okay, so Pesel Micha was an attraction all the time that it was by Micha, and then it was moved by Shevet Dan or up north. So at this point in time, it's it's in, with Shevet Dan in the north. Yeah. But but what happens with Pesel Micha? I'm, I'm actually I actually maybe wasn't clear there. I was trying to draw a contrast. People loved to go to the temple of Micha. Micha was warm and welcoming. And people stopped going to Shiloh because they didn't like Hafni and Pinchas and the way Hafni and Pinchas uh, treated the people who came. And so this is something that I think everybody can relate to because we all have these experiences when you go someplace and they yell at you that you're, you know, who knows what, you, you're doing something wrong and why are you here? It's a holy place and how do you act like that? And, and there's always, there's always someone or you just get like, you know, attacked by a pigeon at the hotel. It happens to everybody. 
you know, you come home with a little unpleasant souvenir. So there are places that are more attractive and you have a situation, you know, in the whole Sefer Shoftim, nobody even talks about Chilo. It's like incidental, it's barely even mentioned. Maybe once or twice it's mentioned in the whole Sefer Shoftim. It's very peripheral. And so we have a situation where the Jews have a holy place, a place where they're supposed to go three times a year and they don't go. So we're just human and we don't like this sort of thing, but Elkanah is made of different stuff. So Elkanah used to make a pilgrimage to Shiloh four times a year, three times as required by scripture, and one time in fulfillment what he required of himself on his own. This is Medrash. It says in the Pasuk, Miyamim Yamima, we don't know exactly what that means, but they say four times a year. Elkanah went up together with his wife, his sons, his daughters, his brothers, his sisters, his kid, his wives, probably. Elkanah, were on, when they were on the way, they would lodge in the board place of a city. As a result, the city was astir. People were saying, where are you going? And they would say, we're going to the house of God in Shiloh, where Torah and mitzvahs come. Why don't you come with us? We'll all go together. At that, tears came into the eyes of the questioners, and they said, yes, we will go with you. So one year, five families went up. The year after, 10 families. The year after, the whole city went up going to Shiloh. Moreover, the way Elkanah would go one year, he would not go the following year. He would go another way instead. So Elkanah kept bringing up more and more Israelites with him until all of them began to go. He was a one-man revolution. He was a one-man Kirib operation. Why don't you come with me to Shiloh? Every time a different town. And every time he was bringing more people up to Shiloh. The Holy One said to him as a result, Elkanah, you tip the balance on the scales in Israel's favor. You train them in the observance of commandments so that many people earn merit because of you. Therefore, I will have a son issue from you who will likewise tip the balance on the scales in Israel's favor and train them in the observance of commandments. And many will grow in merit through him. Very, very beautiful medrash about Elkanah. And incidentally, we get a hint of the problems that are going to happen with Shafi and Pinchas. He made his sacrifice, he made his thing. Now, this is probably what we call a shlamim. This was the sacrifice of festivals that would be, there was a whole procedure, but most of the meat was given to the family, some to the Kohen and some to the, you know, some was the fats were burnt and blood is sprinkled, but this was meant to be eaten together. So there's Penina with her 10 children, and he's giving her portions, Pasuke. And Hannah, he would give her one portion, because he can give her more portions, but a paim is it's hard to interpret. Like many, many different ways of interpreting. We're just gonna say special. He gave her a special portion. For two reasons, because he loved Hannah and Hashem <coughs> closed her womb. For two reasons, because she couldn't, because he loved her and because he couldn't give her more portions for her children. So there we have this um, situation. But, as above, the kiasata tsarata gam kaas ba'abur harima kisagara shema adrachma. The language here is poetic, but very sad. Now, what is it, Sara? Sara is narrow. Anytime you're in a narrow place, in a tight spot, right? Gesher, Tzara, Ma'od. This house is too narrow for two wives. It's not enough space. 
And so we use the word Sarah to mean a rival. And her rival angered her, more anger again and again in order to make her is thunder, to make her stormy, to make her thunder. Why? Because Hashem closed her womb. Now this is odd because we're giving her the same motivation as Elkanah. Elkanah gives her a special portion because Hashem closed her womb. And Penina drives her crazy because Hashem closed her womb. What's going on here? And this goes on. This is masculine. That's what he would do every year. He would take everyone up and he would make the sacrifice and would give out the portions and a special one for Hannah. This is referring to Hannah. Whenever Hannah would go up, Elkanah would give her the special portion. And then came Tachisena. And then Panina would anger her. But if and she cried and she wouldn't eat. So now, going back to the Medrash, okay. So it says here, Padina would taunt Hannah. What would she say to her? Did you get a scarf for your older son? Did you get undergarments for your second son? Why don't you get up and wash your children's faces so that they will be ready to go to school? Hannah, why don't you take your children home from school? When they sat down to eat, Panina would say, give my son this portion, give that son his portion, right? You have given no portion to this one. She's, you know, why did Panina speak this way to make her fret, to make her thunder? So we have to stop for a minute and talk about this situation because it's, 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 it's excruciating. I mean, anyone uh, who knows anyone who has had trouble having children, I just, it's kind of mind boggling and horrifying to think that someone would like twist the knife and, you know, emphasize the, 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 what's missing and hurt her in such a way. It's almost impossible to understand what Panina's doing. But interestingly enough, Chazal say this phrase, right? To make her storm was because they want, she wanted her to daven. Now, how can we understand that? How can we possibly give Panina any kind of kafsachut, any kind of meritorious explanation for this poisonous behavior and this meanness, which must have put Hannah right over the edge? It was just too, too awful, right? So I want to show you something. Okay, so here, the Musar Nabiyim says, um, she angered her, and there's absolutely no explanation for this. And the Medrash says, they did this with an evil, she did this with an evil, the Yalkut says, to, with an evil intention, because she wanted her to be angry at God. And you can also theorize that she wanted her to fight with her husband, because this, Penina's not in a great place either, because she knows that Elkanah loves Hannah more than her. So it's not a fun place to be either. And there probably is a, some jealousy there. So you can understand why. But then Rev Lady comes along, Darash Latovata. He said, no. She wanted her to storm so that she would daven. And here, how can we say that that's true? Because when did Panina act like this? Only in Shiloh. 
Every time that Elkanah went up and Hannah went up with her, that's when Penina would be obnoxious, mean, and poisonous. So that's one way of saying, okay. And Rev. Levy said something else that Musa and Nabiyam is clarifying. It's impossible. It's not possible that Elkanah would be a prophet, would have the spirit of God living in a house with such a wicked woman and the hatred that would be created between these two women. It's like not Shia in a certain sense, the Muslim of you say. So let's take a look at Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, who discusses this. And um, I think it's sort of really bottom line, in my opinion. Hannah was taunted by Penina about her barrenness. The sages testified that Penina intended L'Shem Shemayim, hoping to inspire Hannah into praying for children, which in fact she did. Yet, because of the mental anguish she's caused, Penina suffered the loss of her children. That's a discussion, just to give you the short version. Uh, according to the Medrash, um, eight of Penina's 10 children died as Hannah was having children. After Hannah had more, she had more children. And every time she had a child, two of Penina's died. That's the Medrash. And when she had two left, she came begging Hannah for forgiveness. And those two remained alive. So this is a little bit absolutely terrifying, horrific punishment for Penina. And how do we understand this if she meant well? And Rav Chaim says like this, it's not only the severity of the punishment that makes the judgment for hurtful personal relationships so awesome. It is also culpability for well-intentioned actions. Thus, if one harms one's fellow man, even with the best of intentions, in order to be of service in some way, the punishment is no less severe. In other words, it doesn't really matter, according to Rav Chaim, that Penina meant well, because she hurt Hannah so badly. We must view the punishment meted out for interpersonal offenses in a different manner. It is not retribution in the sense of reward and punishment. It is part and parcel of the reality of our existence. As surely as one must be hurt by a collision with another object, so too must one be harmed when one is hurt in another person's feelings. When one puts his hand into fire, it will be burnt. Countless good reasons for doing so notwithstanding. Very, very powerful statement by Rav Chaim. In other words, I could put my hand in a fire to save a child or to save a safer Torah, but the fire is a fact of life and the fire burns. So a person who does that will be burned, right? This insight places interpersonal relationships in a different light altogether. We cannot excuse our actions by rationalizing our intentions for whenever we cause anguish, there will be retribution. It is a cause and effect relationship in which excuses and rationalizations are, irrationalizations are irrelevant. A very, very powerful statement. In other words, he's saying, even if Penina meant well, she's still gonna be punished because she hurt Hannah so terribly. It's very, very sad. Okay, so we left off um, at this point. That's, that's actually one of our definite lessons that you cannot hurt other people even for a good reason. There's no such thing. You know, it says, you know, Tonu, you can't um, oppress or hurt another person with, with words. So Hannah don't, doesn't eat and doesn't 
and cries. These are classic signs of depression. Hana is, it's just, just happened too often. It's going on too long. She's too sad. She's too miserable. It's heartbreaking. And Elkanah says to her, Pasiket, Vayomala Elkanah Isha, Hana, Lame Tivki, Vilame Lo Tochli, Vilame Yevala Babeh, Halo Anochi Tovlach Measer Abanim. And Elkanah says to her now, notice the Lame. It's softer than Lama. It's soft. He's speaking to her gently. Hana, why are you crying? Why don't you eat? Why are you so sad? Aren't I better to you than 10 sons? It's, it's you know, as women, we can, we can take our, you know, take a look at this statement and say, he's really trying. It, it's, he's really trying. But what's going on here? I mean, what, what do you say about that? Aren't I better to you than 10 sons? Elkanah, Elkanah, you're a nice guy, but you're missing the point, right? So the different explanations, aren't I better to you than 10 sons? Don't I love you more than I love her 10 sons, right? Paninas, don't, aren't I better to you? Isn't my love for you better than the love of 10 children? Like why? Just please, Hannah, get over it. Just get over it, right? Don't be sad anymore. It hurts him that she's suffering, right? But, you know, in analyzing what he says, right, if you compare him to Yaakov, he's doing great. Because when Rachel comes to Yaakov, and Rachel's much harsher than Hannah, Rachel says, Habali Banim, three children. If not, I'm dead. So that's kind of harsh. And Yaakov is also harsh. He says, Am I God who kept you from having children? P.S. I have children. So yeah, so because I don't, don't really appreciate what Yaakov said. They said that's how you answer someone who's in misery, right? But it's 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 like it's interesting how the Tanakh has different personalities and different couples and different interactions. And Hannah is so gentle, and Elkanah is so sweet, but he's missing the point. She wants a child. It's very nice that you love me. I really appreciate that, but I still want a child. You're not understanding. My need here, this really deep need to have a child. And all of a sudden, something changes here. Like this was a, a repeated action again and again and again and again. And now she cries, she doesn't eat, she's too depressed. And Elkanah says, Hannah, please, don't be so sad. I love you so much. And all of a sudden she gets up and she goes to the Heichal Shem. The Malbim here is, I really want you to see it inside. Hine batakam, right? She doesn't answer Elkanah. She doesn't say Elkanah, you're missing the point. She thinks about what he says and she realizes, right? Batakam. Hine, the Malbim says, Till now, she says, my husband decided to have it for me. Probably when Rachel was thinking about Yaakov, also, I, my husband said to have he's dominating for me. She saw him out and he gave up. He's in despair. She said, oh boy, I've got to have it myself. And this is, a very, very important lesson, very important, right? 
my husband once took a girl to Shlomo Zaman Orbach many years ago. She wanted a bracha for a shidduch. And Shlomo Zaman said, Davin, what do you want a bracha for? You're davening for yourself is more powerful than any bracha that anyone can give you. And that's a thing that people fail to understand. People go to Kibre Tzadikim and they go, they, well, Kibre Tzadikim is tefillah, so let's skip that one. But go, they go for brachas from Tzadikim and they go for things like this and school us and it's really, Kodesh wants us to daven. And Hannah is now going to make the most ultimate tefillah and the most powerful um, expression of tefillah. And because she sees, but the Gemara says, I'm the one who has to do this. No one's going to do it for me. And Ailey's sitting there. Now, Ailey had just been appointed judge. See, it's, it's Yoshe, which is present, but the Vav is missing. So the Chazal say this was the beginning of his career as judge. And he's sitting in the doorway. She's bitter of spirit. And she davens on Hashem. The Chazal say that that's a very kind of aggressive davening. And she cries and cries. Just imagine, like, her husband's given up. Her, her rival wife is, is making her miserable. And she just is pouring her heart out. It's, 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 it's wrenching. It's her tefillah now. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking, right? And she bows a bow. And she says, Hashem Tzvakot, God of hosts, if you will see the misery of your maidservant, and you'll remember me, and don't forget your maidservant, and you will give for your maidservant the seed of men, I will give him to you all the days of his life, and he will not have a razor go up on his head. Let's just continue this thought and then we'll come back to it. And Bahaya Pasikibet Bahayaki Herbitalit Palelfna Shemba Eli Shamerit Piha. Bechana Pasikigemo Hana Himidaberit Aliba. We can get to Eli's reaction in a minute. Let's talk about her tefillah. What are the salient features of her tefillah? And we learn so much from Hana's davening. First of all, the vow you see that it is possible to make a uh, pledge to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and say, well, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, I want someone, I'm willing to give this, I'm willing to do this, if you will do this for me. Of course, you have to fulfill that vow. But it's, it's not a crazy thing to do, right? She does that. And she's thinking here about Shimshon, the idea that he will not have a razor on his head, that will be a Nazir, but we never hear about this again. It's not like a major important part of Shmuel's life. And it says here, you will remember me and not forget me. Two languages she wants. You know, what, what does that mean? Maybe male children and female children. The pseudocyst is just, you know, repeating herself. Three times she calls herself Amatecha, your maidservant, your maidservant, your maidservant. And the Chazal say she's reminding Hashem that the women have three mitzvot. Okay? She says, I did all the mitzvot. The first one is chala. The second one is nida. And the third one is hadlakat nerot. And if you look at the initials of those three things, they spell chana. Chala, nida, 
had like had day off. She says, I did all my obligations. I'm a good girl. Why? Why Hashem? Why not? Right? And she says, I, I don't want a child for me, for my Nahat, so I could, you know, send pictures on Instagram. I want to give it to you. I want it to be Zerat Hashem. I want it to be like the great men, like Moshe and Aaron that he's compared to. I want to give it to Hashem, to you. I want it to serve you. I don't want for myself. Now, the Midrashim are very, very beautiful. I want to spend a minute on, um, one second, this Midrash, Hashem Tzvaot. Now, no one has ever called God Hashem Tzvaot before. Rebbe Lazar said, from the day the Holy One created his world, there was no one who called him Hashem Tzvaot. Now, when you see in the English Lord of Hosts, that Hashem Tzvaot, Tzvaot is army. Right, Tohana came and called him Lord of Hosts. And she said, Master of the universe, out of all the hosts of hosts you created in your world, is it so difficult for you to give me one son? Sorry, it makes me emotional. I just like every time I teach this, I feel so badly for all these women going through this. By what parable may Hannah's petition be illustrated? By the one of a king of flesh and blood who made a feast for his servants, a poor man came and standing by the doorway begged him, give me a morsel of, beg them, give me a morsel of bread, but no one heeded him. So he forced his way into the presence of the king and he said, my lord king, out of the entire feast you have made, is it so difficult in your sight to give me one morsel of bread? This is an absolutely beautiful medrash. And um, if you, any of you have the book, by Simi Peters understanding Medrash. She does like a marvelous job with this. We don't have time to go into it. But if you learn any Medrash, what you have to do is make, take, I'm, I'm saying not Medrash, a mashal. A mashal is a parable and you have to figure out what's the nimshal. So obviously the king is Hashem and obviously the feast is children. And this, um, this uh, request that she has to give me one child Right, one um, uh, morsel of bread, the bread is that child. There's an interesting element here that Sibi um, Peters analyzes very beautifully. And it says, what are these servants doing in there? Like if we go to parallel the people in the uh, king's palace, who are those people, right, that don't pay attention to him? So he forces his way into the king himself. And she says, it has to only be, who are the people in Hannah's life? Elkanah and Penina. And up until now, she comes to the, you know, the servants, to the people, and says, give me bread, but they can't help her. Penina can't help her, and Elkanah can't help her. Only Hashem can help her. And she recognizes that it has to go, just go right up to the king. She goes right up, because Hashem, can't you find it? in your heart to give me one child. There's other very beautiful midrashim here. Chanah mitzaberet aliba, aliba, matters of her heart. Rabbi Lazar said, you created a woman, there's nothing useless to have eyes to see and ears to hear and nose to smell, mouth to speak, legs to walk with, breasts to nurse a child. You gave me breasts to nurse a child. Why don't you give me a child so that I could, you know, nurse him? 
Now there's another medrash, which I, I really, um, Rashi won't talk about it, so I don't know if I should. Rashi. Which is always like Rashi's basically saying, I don't talk about that medrash. I don't think so. Basically, that medrash, I'll give you the short version, is that she says, a sota, right? If a sota is guilty, a sota is a woman who, who closets herself, is yifud with a different man, that's not her husband. And if she is guilty of adultery, she dies. And if she's not guilty, she has a child. The medrash says that she said, you know what, God, I could use your Torah against you. I could... I could have yichud with some other man and not be guilty, and then you have to give me a talk because that's what it says in your Torah. It's it's like we're getting like the sense when you go through Kana's tefillah is that she's just pulling out all the stops and saying, "God, I really, really, you, you have to do this for me. I, I I can't do this anymore. You must help me." And the the Gemara and Bracha says, "How many things you learn from Kana? Number one, it's about the aliba." One who prays must direct his heart towards God. These are some of the lessons we learned from Hannah's tefillah, which is the paradigm of our tefillah today. You must pronounce the words with your lips. Her voice is not heard. You don't daven out loud. You don't disturb others. Okay, and then we get to Eli. So let's talk about Eli. From here we learn a drunkard is not permitted to pray. Right? That's the next Pasuk. And here we learn that if you see something in your friend that's not correct, you should, you should rebuke them. So it gets back to the text. Ailey looks at her and he's never seen anything like this. She's shaking with the power of her tears and her and her fervent prayers and her begging of God and her incredible um, convictions this coming from her deepest, deepest um, pain. And he looks at her and he sees her. He's never seen anyone daven like that before. It's a new thing. He doesn't know. And he says, I think she's drunk. So there's a famous Vilna Gaon which says that, you know, his breastplate lit up the words, you know, Shin Chaf Reish Hei, and he didn't interpret it right. It means you know, Kesheira, and he understood it to be Shikora, but in, in, just at the psychological level, Ailey is not, is not hopping what's going on here. And that's a problem. You're, you're the judge, right? When, when uh, Yoshua is appointed, right? Moshe says, someone who can get people, who can relate to people. And Ailey looks at her and he doesn't see misery and, and, and desperation, he sees a crazy drunken woman. What are you doing here? Right? Get out of here. Sober up. Go have a coffee. Right? Go get a nap. And this is what I call adding insult to injury. Not bad enough that she's so miserable that she's standing there with her heart pouring out to God, and he says, get out of here, you're drunk. It's just, it's mind-boggling. And it is, you know, it's like, Haley is such a great tzaddik, but there's a problem here. Pasik Tesvav. Batan chana batomer lo atomi, ishak shat ruach anochi, 
what do you mean? How miserable. But I didn't, I didn't drink anything. I poured out my heart before God. And by the way, up here, I did forget to mention it, where it says, right, that she got up. These words, what Mayash is there's no possessive dot saying her eating in either word. These are words that are called makor, they're gerunds, after the eating and after the drinking. She says, I didn't drink. So she waits for the opportune time, because if you know how it goes, right, you go to shul and you daven, and then you make, you make your sacrifice, and you go home, you have your dinner, and then you have your nap. So everybody's napping. She wanted that privacy, right? And she says, I didn't drink anything. Right, so there are people who say after she ate, after she drank, but she's not eating or drinking at this point. And she says, "I'm just pouring out my heart to God." Don't take me for a bad woman. I'm just miserable. I'm just like so agitated. She, the medrash says that she was harsh with him. Lo adoni, lo adona tara. She says. You have shown me that you have no Ruach HaKodesh. You don't get anything. You're, you're, you're off. So, and then she says, no, don't, I, I don't, you know, she walks it back. Like, I'm sorry, I, I, I was just too agitated. So it's very interesting, this exchange between her and Ailey. What's exactly being said? The Medrash makes it a much harsher exchange than it sounds like in the shot. It just says like, no, you're making a mistake. I'm just miserable. I, I'm just so miserable. And he's, he feels bad. Right? And he says, go in peace and may God give you the request that you requested from him. This is not clear if this is a prophecy or a prayer, but either way, it makes her very happy. Now, the word shelotech is supposed to be spelled with an olive, and the, the word spelled without the olive has a sort of connotation of shiliyah, which is the Hebrew word for placenta. So there's some sort of hint there of childbirth. God should give you what you ask for. And the Gemara in Brachas points out that if, right, um, if someone is suspected of something which he's innocent, he should inform his accuser of this fact in order to clear himself. And she says, I'm not drunk, right? And, right, Ailey says, go in peace. One who suspects his friend of something he has not committed is required to placate him. And not only that, he must bless him. So Ailey, there's a lot, there's so much we learn about tefillah and about human relations from this unbelievable parak, very powerful parak. Okay, and she's like delighted. She says, now we know. Now she eats. She didn't eat before. That's how I see this. And she didn't have the same face. Literally, it means she didn't have the face. The face that she didn't have her face anymore. But we understand because if you see someone who's depressed and miserable, you can see on their face this misery, and it's gone. And interestingly enough, right? She says, "I find favor. Please continue to pray for me." And she goes on her way. Now here, right? The major says, "Ladarka," right? Um, Malbim says, our rabbi said, right? Okay, when 
Rachel hides the trophim from her father. She says, I can't get, he's searching everywhere. She says, I can't get up to Derek Mashimli. The way of women is on me. So the way is a hint to her period. And she went and she got her period. And she ate and she was encouraged. And it seems that probably, to my mind, that the reason she was in such despair was because she had stopped having her period. And she, and everyone said, that's it. You don't know a period. That's it. You're out of luck. And so she wasn't giving up so fast. And that's, that's a hint that she got her period after this. They get up early, they go back home, and um, Elkanah knows her in the biblical sense, and God remembers her, and that is why this is the Haftorah for Rosh Hashanah, Hashem remembers Sarah, and Rosh Hashanah, and the Haftorah is Hashem remembering Hannah. And there was a period of time, this is a hint of early and she has uh, she's pregnant and she has a son she names him Shmuel because she asked him for God but Doc says Shaul Mikhail the mem is missing here it's very much related to Shaul who's going to be a very major part of his life <coughs> and um, this is a great simcha and Elkanah goes up to for his usual sacrifice the Chana Pasuk Chafet Lo Alata. She doesn't go up this time. Yamali Shah. Adi Gamel Hanar. Until he's weaned, Bahaviyotiv, I will bring him. Binirat Bnei Hashem Yashab Shamad Olam. Until the youth is weaned, then I will bring him up, and then he will appear before God, and he will stay there forever. I'm not bring when he's old enough to be weaned. I'll bring him up, and I'll leave him there. And Elkanah says, Vayomala Elkanah Isha Chav Gimel. Do what you think is best. Wait until you wean him. Let God only fulfill his word. And the woman sat and she nursed her son until she weaned him. Now this phrase, is a little strange. May God fulfill his word. What is the word? So the Pashat shot would be, to fulfill his word, to give you the child that you asked for, that would be a great child because Pasha Pshad, she got the child already. So what does that mean? But there's a terrific medrash here, beautiful medrash that says that there was a bat kol, why she brings it. Every day there would be a bat kol going out in the world and saying, we're going to have a tremendous tzaddik born and his name is going to be Shmuel. And everybody heard this Paschal. Now, if you were a woman having a baby, and the Paschal was saying, there's going to be a great man named Shmuel. What would you name your son? Right? So everybody named their son Shmuel. Because wouldn't you? Right? The Chal Isha Shaitayoelet Ben, it's like a great Shmuel, one of my favorite midrashim, so cute. Kevan Shayurimit Masava, your remains a Shmuel. And as the kid grew up, they saw how he behaved, and they said, oh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think this guy is the great side we're waiting for. Doesn't like, he's a little bit of a shobab, not really. The cave in and when they saw this one and how he behaved, they said, we think we found him there. Let God fulfill that word, that this Shmuel will be that great sonic. 
And then when he's weaned, but Alevi Makashegamalatu Bifarim Shoshav Eifa Hatkema Enable Yayin gifts for the Kohen for the Kohenim, and she brought him to the house of Shem. It's Beyobet Hashem Shilov Hanar Nar. Hanar Nar is a very strange phrase. We don't know exactly what that means. He's still young, or the Malbim says that he's like he's shaken out. In other words, even though he's young, we can see his, you know, like we can see his power coming forward. But she brings him up. Can you imagine after 21 years having this child and bringing him up to give him over to Eli? They, they sacrifice the par, the, the bull, and they bring him to Eli. And she says to Eli, Excuse me, sir. By your life. I'm the woman. I'm that woman that was Davin. This is the child that I prayed for. God gave me this request that I requested from him. My, my tefillot came true. And I'm also giving him back to God all the days that he will be he is on loan to God, and they bow there to Hashem. It's a very, very interesting phrase. First, the word Shaul jumps out at you, as if to say, like we saw, that there's going to be a tremendous connection between Shmuel and Shaul. And also, it's interesting because she says, God gave my request that I requested, and I'm giving him back to God. Like she's saying, He's mine. He's mine, but I'm giving him back to God. I'm lending him. In modern Hebrew, lashil is to lend. And this is also part of the, the sense of it here. When she comes to Eli, she says, right, this is what I promised, and this is what I'm doing. And at the beginning of the next chapter, we see her, her tefillah. Now, it's, it's interesting because we talk about tefillah Hana. Are we talking about the Shira, the song that she sings at the beginning of chapter two, which we're going to do next time is Rat Hashem. Or are we talking about the tefillah that, you know, breaks open the heavens, the crying and the power and the, and the, the different ways that she argues with God. So is that, what's the tefillah Chana? But you see, and it's, it's important to really, really, what, what you can get from this parak is to understand, right, I'm going to stop the screen share. Um, the, the greatest message from this from this parak is the great great um, gift that we're given that we are able to go directly to Kadosh Baruch Hu and to dive into him directly we don't have any intermediaries we don't need any intermediary we don't need someone it's nice if people daven for you, but like Rav Zalman told that girl, you have to daven for yourself. There's no way that you can underestimate the power and the greatness of your own tefillot, of your own direct connection to Kaddish Baruch Hu, and you can talk to Kaddish Baruch Hu, and you can explain to him what's on your mind, and this is a tremendous thing that we all learn from Khan. It's interesting to me as well that the paradigm of tefillah it's from a woman. Okay, anybody have questions?
I'm trying, I'm trying to put so you know, but it's like, it's such a powerful story. It's like one of the greatest stories, you know, the, the beauty. What? I don't hear Ruthie, you're muted, darling. I'm saying some of these beautiful Pesukim are songs. And after Sphira, people could listen to them about the power of prayer and how, you know, women really have a part in it. Okay, so you'll maybe send it to the chat. We'll check it out on Magba Omer coming up soon. There's Rats Hashem. Yeah. I have, is there any, uh, you have any questions? Because like I, I went kind of fast, I think. So I'm totally open for questions if you have. I have a random question that just came to me. Um, we don't learn so much about Shmuel's personal life. Like, I mean, we learn how he's, you know, how he's born and all this, but like, he doesn't ever like have his own family and get married, right? He does. He does in chapter eight. He does. Beginning of chapter eight, he has two sons. Yeah, so he definitely got married and he had two sons. Oh, okay. I don't know. I I wasn't didn't remember that. Okay, that's it. But they're very different in the story. That's why you don't remember it. They're just not. They're not critical to the story. They do play a part, but we don't get to know them. Not so much either. When we get to that, we will. But it's Hashem. We'll talk about it. But he was definitely not a Nazir then. <laughs> Nazir was, by the way, a Nazir was allowed to get married. Oh. This is a, a misconception people have. A Nazir was allowed to get married. It's not like with the Christians. It, it actually, the assumption is that if she promised that he'd be a Nazir, that he was a Nazir. It's just, it's just never mentioned again. It seems as if because of Shimshon that there was this, this thing like being a Nazir was like a holy thing, but it doesn't seem to have had any major impact on you know, what he does. Like we don't hear about it again. Like the Shimshon was a major part of his, his life story, which more was so much else going on. Rabbit and Sharin, can I ask a question? Sure. You said that uh, it's the, this is the favorite safer of many people. And I was wondering what made you say that? That many people like. I'll tell you why. Because there is a, on the OU, which actually I really recommend if you ever have time for it, they have something called Nachyomi. And uh, so I've been trying to keep up with the Nachyomi. It's like 10 minutes a day, but it's like, it, it's, it's hard to keep up with it, you know, if you really want to learn it properly. But I, I went through the first cycle. Now they're in the middle of the second cycle. And it's uh, by women, for women. It's very, very nice. Right now they're in Tillam. But at the end of the first cycle, they did a survey. They asked, like there were a lot of women who were doing it. And they said, what's your favorite safer? And most of the people said, well, I didn't make it up. The school is just no, I didn't think you made it up. I just wondered why people like it. I'll tell you. you know, a lot of drama with David and Shaul, no? A lot of drama in Shoftim also, but in certain ways, Shoftim, I mean, I love Shoftim because there's just so much going on there, but in a certain way, Shoftim is like sort of the people are kind of going downhill spiritually. That's, that's kind of depressing. And, you know, in Shmuel and in Malachim as well, I mean, not so much, but in Shmuel, you have like 
these incredible personalities, how like you see, you'll see what Shmuel is able to accomplish in the in you know dealing with the whole people. It's it's very inspiring, very inspiring. And then meet the greatest king ever, you know, David. Ashol also has like great points to him. But once you like get into the story of David, it's very, you know, very, very interesting. I, it's just that I remember that survey, I was found it very interesting that like they, they asked like, uh, you know, a bunch of women who were doing the Nachyomi and they said they love Shmuel. <laughs>